The Lord be with you. And happy Valentine's Day. And also with you. It's, uh, it is Valentine's Day, guys. I just want a little helpful hint, you know, from your guy up here. Thursday, okay? I know the only thing in your mind that's clicking in about Thursday is that that's when the new Die Hard movie's coming out, but it's also Valentine's Day, okay? Just don't forget that and don't go to Die Hard on Valentine's Day, okay? That's just bad. And don't go to McDonald's in Lockport for Valentine's Day. I'm sorry, that's just a dumb idea, okay? You can make reservations there if you want to, but no, don't do that. Don't go to White Castle. It's Valentine's Day. My dilemma is solved. We will be on a plane on our way to Kenya with 100 people on our way to Africa. Because nothing says I love you like a teaspoon of peanuts. Am I right? Yeah. I do have one Valentine card recommendation for you, though, before we get started. It's this one. You're just like bacon. You make everything better. Amen. That's God right there. Amen. Um, and, and I know that uh, not all of you were here last weekend, so you don't understand what I'm about to say, but I just want to make sure that you all tithe on your winnings from the Super Bowl. Please do not forget that, because you did hear it here first. And I know some of you weren't here last weekend, so you don't really believe that I prophesied the Ravens were going to win, and yet I did, and I will prove it to you. The last prophecy was about Joseph Flacco, which is from the life of Joseph, and then, you know, here it is. I just want to show you, because... In Genesis 43:30, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. So <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen today until we get to the New Testament. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Consider the ravens. There you go. I am a prophet. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I don't know why you're clapping. I have a 50% chance every time. I mean, <laughs> come on. Um, we're doing this story thing. If you're new, we're glad that you're here. We're going through the entire Bible in 31 weeks. Uh, the story, uh, what, what they've done is they've taken the t entire Bible and they've kind of put out the the redundant parts and the parts that aren't as important and put it all in chronological order so that you could put it all together. And I'm not saying the whole Bible's not important, but I wanted you to be able to see just the big picture, okay? This is like the puzzle outline so that you can see what the picture, how, the, how you can put the rest of the picture together. Uh, and we're in chapter 20 today. I got news for you. Only one more week in the Old Testament. Next week is the amazing story of Nehemiah. You're not going to want to miss it. The week after that, it's Christmas time. Jesus is here. Are we excited to have the New Testament? Testament. Yay! Finally. So I'm doing the story of Esther today, and I'm going to do it. Uh, my, Dave, my friend Dave Stone had this uh, great idea of how to do the story of Esther, and it, it was using playing cards, okay? So just uh, humor me for a little bit, and let me, let me do this for you, okay? We start off the story of Esther with a king. The king's name is Xerxes, with an X. He is the king of Persia. This takes place with the people who, if you were here last week, you know that some of the people went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Well, this week, this is about the people who didn't go back. These are the people who are 900 miles away in Babylon, which exactly is, actually, at this point, is Persia. Okay, because, you know, Persia has taken over. And Persia's kingdom, Xerxes' kingdom, extended all the way from India to the Mediterranean Sea. So Xerxes, he's a party guy, okay? He likes to have fun. In the third year of his reign, he has a party. I mean, when he has a party, he has a party. Forget about partying like it's 1999. You want to party like it's 482 B.C. Because when he had a party, it lasted for six months. 
That's not a party, that's a lifestyle, isn't it? Now, how much bean dip can you eat? That's, that's, a, that's what he did for six months. They had a party. And we pick up on page 276, Esther 110 says, when, the king, when King Xerxes, this is always a bad day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, when have you ever heard what happens after that to be a good thing? You're right? When King Xerxes is really shammered, okay, here we go, he commanded the men who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, his queen, wearing her royal crown in order, to, for her, in order to display her beauty for the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. All right? So here we have the beautiful Queen Vashti. She's very beautiful, and he invites her to come out and show off her beauty in front of all these people. Now, the interesting thing is some commentators believe that what he was actually saying was come out in only your crown, okay? Uh, one way or another, he's objectifying her beauty, okay? It, it, one way or another, that's basically what he's doing. One way or another, if you sign up to do a commercial in the Super Bowl in your underwear for billions of people to see, it's your decision. But if you don't want to do that, you're probably not going to be real high on the idea, which was how Vashti felt about it. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, to refuse the king is never a good idea. You know this, right? But to refuse this king is really never a good idea. This king was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He thought he was a god. He, he, just, he, he, just, he had so many things that he did weird. But, but let me help you to understand who he is. I will show you the most recent picture that we have of King Xerxes right here. You're like, oh, wait, I've seen that. Yeah, that's the crazy king from the 300 movie. This is the same king, King Xerxes. Obviously, this is a dramatization from a movie, but it was the same king who did the Battle of Thermopylae, the very famous, one of the most famous battles in all of history in 480 B.C. when he had all of his soldiers coming up this pass and the 300 Spartans and a few of their friends held them off for days and days and days. And this is the same crazy king who forced his soldiers to go fight the Spartans. He killed his own soldiers so that the other soldiers would see that he was serious and they had to go fight and they were going to die one way or another. That's how crazy this guy is. And history tells us that the Battle of Thermopylae left 20,000 Persian soldiers dead. 300 Spartans and a few hundred of their thespian allies killed 20,000 men before they were finally overtaken by the, you know, roundabout, sneaky way around the back. Uh, who knows what would have happened if they hadn't figured out how to get around behind them. That's the Battle of Thermopylae, and that's crazy King Xerxes. As a matter of fact, he is so crazy and so prideful that at the Battle of Thermopylae, his 20,000 soldiers, he buried or threw into the sea 19,000 of their bodies so that when the rest of his army came marching by, they would not see how bad he got killed. That's who he was. He, he was that prideful. So when crazy Xerxes is three sheets to the wind, as they say, it is not going to be a good day. But Vashti doesn't care. She says, I am strong, I am invincible, I am woman. I'm not going to be your trophy tonight. And his advisor said, oh no, she didn't. 
here's what's going to happen. You've got to fix this, okay? The, the advisor said, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and they will despise their husbands. Because they'll say, Xerxes commanded Vashti to come, and she would not come. And this very day, all the women are going to hear this. All the women who are heard about the queen's conduct are going to respond to us, the king's nobles, in the same way. There will be no end to the disrespect or the discord. Look at what's going to happen in our families. Pretty soon they'll be burning their bras and wanting equal pay, and who knows where this is going to go. It's the beginning of women's lib. So, King Xerxes, shmammered King Xerxes, vanishes Queen Vashti. And in the law of the Medes and Persians, uh, it is an irrevocable law. Now, thankfully, he doesn't kill her. He just banishes her. It was probably her best day ever. But he banishes her from the kingdom, okay? Uh, now, then he, so he sobers up, and he realizes that the decisions you make, I don't know if you've ever found this, while intoxicated are not usually the best decisions. We get to chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti, and what he had done, and what he had decreed about her. I mean, if you understand what this is saying is, he's really sad that he made that stupid decision. He actually loved Vashti, and now she's gone. And now there's nothing else for him. I mean, he's lonely, he's depressed. Now here's what's interesting about this. He has a harem, all right? He has plenty of women. It's ironic that we learn all the way back in the book of Esther that sex is no substitute for love, isn't it? I mean, all the women he could possibly want to sleep in, but he misses his wife. Four years go by. He has the Battle of Thermopylae. He has some other battles where he gets beaten by the Greeks. He's not in very good spirits. And the advisors decide to do something to cheer him up again because he's missing his wife. He's having bad battles. He's not sleeping well. He's not doing well. And they decide to come up to a, with a plan because if the king ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. We know that, right? So, so they say, hey, we've got an idea. Let's have a beauty pageant throughout the entire kingdom. Evidently, all of his advisors were male, okay? Let's have a beauty pageant throughout all of the kingdom, and whoever wins will become queen, okay? This is really awesome. I mean, basically what they do is they set up the original bachelor, okay? And they have this, this huge contest with all these women coming from all over the kingdom. Now, before you go blaming these guys for being stupid, dumb guys... Uh, before you go blaming them for that, understand that even though this is a goofy situation and Xerxes is a nut job, God is still working. God has created a beautiful girl, young girl named Esther, the heroine of our story. He's created this girl named Esther. She grew up without parents. Her parents died. We don't know anything about them. She was raised by her older cousin who was kind of like a, a father figure, an uncle figure to her named Mordecai. And all we know at the beginning of this whole story is what the Bible says. Esther had a lovely figure and she was beautiful. And God made her that way. God made her that way for a reason. Like he made you the way he made you for a reason. And somehow she catches the attention of the judges on The Bachelor. And, uh, you know, and they start her in this contest. And she starts doing really, really well. And if you need a frame of reference, if you're like, man, I, I can't picture a, a, a Jewish beauty queen. Okay? If, you need a, if you need a frame of reference for that, here you go. Okay? Uh, it's the one on the left, <laughs> in case you're wondering. 
Bar Raffaele. You may never have heard of her before until the Super Bowl when she kissed that guy. Bar Raffaele is Israeli. She is a Jewish beauty queen. I just want to give you, I'm sorry for the uncomfortable moment I just brought up, but that is a, that is a good image in your mind. This is a very, very beautiful girl that God created. And she goes through the prelims and she gets into the finals, you know, and people have got brackets, you know, and they're, they're betting on it. I mean, it's this big, this big great thing. And, and, and then before she goes into the king, before she goes into the king, she has to un- undergo beauty treatment so that she'll be the perfect specimen for the king when she goes in. Do you know how long did you read this? Twelve months of beauty treatments. You think your wife takes a long time to get ready? Wow, 12 months, okay? I mean, you know, honey, it's February. Can we go yet? I mean, come on. This is ridiculous. Okay, but the, but the interesting part, and the part that I can't really discern, because we can't really tell, but the interesting part is that she never tells anybody that she's Jewish. She never tells anybody that she's from Israel. Remember that uh, they deported all of them to Babylon years ago, and now there's been intermarriage, and now you know different things have gone on, and people have kind of forgotten, and it doesn't really matter one way or the other, and she's just a Middle Eastern-looking woman, and she never bothers telling anybody that she's Jewish. I don't know if she just didn't feel like it was important or if she was hiding it. Because if you go back and contrast Daniel a few weeks ago, he would not... You know, he, he had to tell everybody he was Jewish and he was going to follow God, and he got thrown to the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the idol, and they got thrown into the furnace. Esther just doesn't say anything. So I don't know whether that's right or wrong. And I bring that up because I want you to understand that I don't know whether what you did coming up to this point in your life is right or wrong. I don't think it really matters at this point. We are where we are right here. God has us here where we are right here and what is really important is what we do from here on so she goes through the 12 month (laughs) extreme makeover it was a really long show she finally gets to go in to meet Xerxes and he is smitten he gives her the rose it's uh, it's I mean it's it's done it's done right there this is what's going to happen right but she still hasn't told anyone that she's from Israel, right? So she wins the Miss Persia contest. I mean, Brent Musburger was actually a commentator at this contest. He saw Esther. He said, wow, look at her. She is beautiful. All you boys in Persia, you better get out and start throwing the football around. That really happened. And then Esther is crowned as Miss Persia, and they got married, and he declares a national holiday. And now we have a new queen, the Queen of Hearts. Somebody that he loves again, and he's very excited to be in a relationship. And they get along really, really well. I mean, as far as we know, it's not Disney, because there's a whole lot more to this story. But soon after, the Bible records this really random story about her cousin, Mordecai. Okay? And we'll just bring him into the equation now. He's our ace, okay? We got Mordecai the ace. Brings him in. What, what it, was it, it tells us about Mordecai is that what happens is one day... Again, I believe providentially, Mordecai is sitting by the city gates. That's where the elders hung out a lot. He was sitting by the city gates, and he overheard a a couple of guys talking about how they were going to plot to overthrow the king, King Xerxes. Well, they don't know Mordecai is Esther's, you know, cousin. So Mordecai goes and tells Esther, who goes and tells the king, who tells the secret service people, and they thwart the plot. And they kill the guys. 
But they don't really do anything to recognize Mordecai for it. I don't know if maybe the king forgot about it, or maybe actually the information never even got to him, or what happened, but, but all it says is they wrote Mordecai's name down in the annals, in the king's annals, in his journal. They kept a record of everything that was going on. And I don't know, cinema flower basket said, hey, thanks, we really appreciate this, and they wrote his name down, okay? So now, before we get too much farther, right about this time, Xerxes is starting to have trouble managing his kingdom, and he decides he needs a prime minister. He needs somebody to help him run everything because he can't do it all himself. So he hires this guy, this really rich guy from Persia, named Haman. And we're giving Haman the Joker. Turn him up this way. Giving Haman the Joker. He is the Joker. Not because he is funny, ha-ha, but because he's like the Batman Joker, because he ridicules God's people. Because Haman is a racist. Haman turns out to be a Hitler. Haman is a bad, bad guy. This is a bad day for the Jews when Haman is given the job of prime minister. Both does he, he, also, he hates the Jews and he also loves himself. Haman makes this rule as prime minister that whenever he walks around, people are supposed to bow down to him as well. Even though he's not the king, he wants people to bow down to him. Uh, When I think of Haman, I think of Dwight from the office, okay? That's just how I work. I'm thinking of somebody who wants power so badly that he can't possibly, you know, handle it. And because he is assistant to the regional manager, people actually bow down to him because they don't want to mess with him, okay? Everybody does except for the ace, Mordecai. Mordecai's like, man, I am not bowing down to you. I'm, I'm only going to bow down to God, and I don't even like you because, you know, they're, they were from two different races that didn't like each other very much anyway. So Mordecai said, no, not doing it. I don't know if that was a spiritual reason or a personal reason or whatever. Mordecai says, no, I am not doing it. So this makes Haman so angry that he goes to the king and wants to have not only Mordecai killed, but listen to this, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, and instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This is where I'm getting to that whole Hitler part. I mean, he was a bona fide racist. He really wants to just commit genocide on all of the Jews, all of the Jewish people. So he goes to the king and he says, listen, king, there's this group of people that are they've intermingled among us. You know, we captured them a long time ago and now they're here. They're not our people, king. They're not the right people. We need to exterminate them. And crazy king Xerxes said, okay, go do whatever you want. So Haman sets an extermination day for all of the Jews in Persia the 12th day of the 13th month. I don't know how far that out that was, but you know, it was out enough time where there was enough time to prepare to kill all of the Jews. So if you're Jewish and you're in this situation right about now and you're hearing this, you're like, wait a minute, God, I thought you promised Abraham, I thought you promised David, I thought, I thought you promised that you were going to take care of us. What is going on here now? We've been captured and now we're all going to be killed. And you may be here in this place today. And you may be in a place where you're feeling like, you know what, I got a day. I don't know what the day is. I got a day out there. It's the, it's the what day of the whatever month, and there's a day coming up when I'm not going to be able to do this, or I'm going to have to do this, or something's coming, and it's like a D-day for me, and I don't see you showing up here, God. Can I, can I just put one scripture up for you? God says, never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. Never. In the lower story, the situation is incredibly bleak. It's 185,000 people in the army outside of me, bleak. That's what it's like, okay? But the upper story is that God is still in control, and God has a plan. So the Bible tells us the dispatches were sent by the couriers 
to the king's provinces in order to, and notice the wording on this, to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Now, you know, let's, let's kill them three times, okay? But I want you to notice that wording because it's going to come back a little bit later. I love the next verse. The next verse says, The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Everybody's like, what just happened? Why do we hate Jews? Why does Fred have to die? What is crazy King Xerxes doing now? What's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. So Mordecai hears about the king's edict. He realizes what's going on. He goes, he sends a message to Esther, and he says, Esther, this is what you've got to do. You've got to make something happen. This is your time. And Esther sends back a note to Mordecai saying, listen, Mordecai, I appreciate you know, what you're saying, but you need to understand something. Me and the king, we're not getting along really good right now. It's been 30 days since the king sent for me, is what she said. You know what I mean? She doesn't just get to walk in whenever she wants and say, hey, baby, how's it going? He has to send for her when it's her time. And it's been 30 days, and we don't know why it's been 30 days. She burned the toes. She complained about the harem. She started wearing spanks. We don't know what it is, okay? But whatever it is, it is not a good time. And in case you've forgotten, Mordecai, last time somebody didn't do what the king wanted, it didn't turn out so good. And if I go into him, and I show up uninvited, and he, this is how crazy the guy was, if he does not extend the royal scepter to me, then I could die. In other words, if I show up and he does not want to see me at that moment, then I could die. I mean, this guy's that much of a trip, okay? You ought to remember what happened to Vashti, okay? Now, I love what Mordecai says. This is really great because Mordecai comes back at her. I mean, he's kind of like her father figure anyway, but he comes back at her. I mean, it, she is the Jews hope at this point. I mean, they believe that God's going to handle things, but she's the first line of defense. And he says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone out of all the Jews will escape. In other words, somebody's going to figure out that you're a Jew somewhere along the way, and this is going to be a problem. For if you remain silent at this time, listen to the faith of Mordecai. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You know, Esther, you can be a part of God's plan if you want. Can I just say this? Whatever it is that God has for you, I'm not concerned about His plan if you don't do it. I'm concerned about you if you don't do it. Whatever God has for me, I'm not concerned about what gets done if, or what doesn't get done if I don't do it. I'm concerned about me because I can either be in God's plan or I can be out of God's plan. God's going to get His stuff done whether I do it or not. I just really want to live my life in such a way that I hang out with Him. Don't you? And besides that, you and your father's family will perish. And then here's the classic line. Many of you have heard it before. And who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. I mean, maybe God made you beautiful. Maybe God made you grow up in this vicinity. Maybe God orchestrated all of this so that you would be the one of the chosen people that got to be in the palace. I mean, think about this. Listen, have you ever had that moment? Have you ever had that moment where you had to decide, this is Esther's decision. Am I going to step across the line? It's dangerous. I could die. This is really a serious moment for me. I'm going to step across the line. I'm going to do what God says that He wants me to do. I'm sure you have. And whether you did it or not, I'm going to tell you something else I know. You will have more moments. And what I want us to be praying about today in the story of Esther is, what is my such a time as this? 
What is that going to be for me? How does this thing work? Because I know that there's something that God has in my in mind for me. I know that there's something that God has that He wants me to do, a mission for me that He wants me to do. And Esther, it's no accident that you're here in this position, in this time and place. And whatever your name is, it is no accident that you are here in this time and place for that to happen. I believe that Mordecai quoted Rick Warren right here and said, it's not about you. It's not about you. So she says, okay, well, I guess you're right. And wisely, instead of just going and barging in, she decides to give it three days of prayer. Because the first thing that you ought to do if you're getting ready to walk into a situation where you think things are going to be dangerous, where you think you're going to be walking into a situation where it might be life or death, where you think that there's a situation that you're in that only God can handle, obviously the thing that you ought to do is pray. So she sends back a message to her cousin Mordecai, and she says, listen, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and, and fast for me, and do not eat or drink for three days or nights, and, and three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. Fasting was another way of doing this prayer thing. It was a way of saying, you know what, we're going to do, we're going to pray all the time, and whenever we're hungry, whenever we're thirsty, we're going to stop and we're going to pray, and we're going to commit ourselves to doing that. Fasting gives you the opportunity to make that happen, and you know, that's what, that's what Lent is all about. In case you didn't catch it, here's the sequence of events this week. Fat Tuesday, Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day. I don't know how that works out. Okay? But that's how the whole thing goes. And, and, and I would encourage you, <clears throat> I would encourage you to think about something during Lent this year. You know, I'm going to give up something because I want to, whenever I, whenever I want that, whether it's media or food or sugar or some kind of drink or whatever, whenever I think that I want to go do that, I'm going to stop and go, you know what? I'm going to be thankful for the cross right now. I'm going to be thankful for Jesus. That's the whole idea. And you can stop and you can do that in fasting. It just, it just intensifies the prayer. <clears throat> and then she says, and then when I'm done, if I go into the king, even though it's against the law, if I perish, then I perish. I will pray it up, and then I'm going to step across the line because I believe that you're right. I am born for such a time as this. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's what we're supposed to do, and you're supposed to pray first. So can I just stop for a minute and ask you a question? Is your prayer serious? See, the difference um, in Esther's life with this whole thing is that she was in a position where if God didn't come through, she was dead. That's why she was intense with her prayers. I, I think that most of the time when I pray like that, I'm like, God, please do this, but I don't really think you're going to. It's because I'm not in a situation where I've been out on the edge so far that I've got nobody else to rely on. I want to live my life in such a way that the things that I need God to really come through for, and I think we should pray about everything in our life, pray without ceasing. That's what we should do. But the only way you're going to really be intense enough about it is when you step out and, and you get yourself in situations where if God doesn't come through, it's not going to happen. That's what they did. They prayed. They fasted. Three days and nights, no water, no food, no nothing. And after three days... Esther goes in to see the king. She comes to the you know, doorway, knocks on the door, their eyes meet. She has this moment where she's wondering, you know, is God going to come through for me or not? You ever had that moment? 
And the king extends his royal scepter, and she walks in, and not only does he extend the royal scepter, he turns to her and he says, hey, Esther, I've missed you. How you been? What can I do for you today? I mean, he has this like Valentine moment all of a sudden. He just got hit by Cupid. He's like, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Tell me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. She's like, wow, this went a lot better than I thought it was going to. I was afraid I was going to die, and I walk in, and the guy says, hey, you can have all of my kingdom if you want. So she says, well, uh, okay, well, I, I know how I can do this. Here's what I want to do. I want to have a little banquet with just the three of us, just you, me, and, you know, your prime minister, Haman. I just want the three of us to be here all together in a little banquet. And so he sets it up, and he says, yeah, you know what, this will be great. And she goes to the banquet, and at the banquet she is going to ask the king to rescind the law, killing all the Jews, and she's going to own up and fess up to the fact that she's really a Jew. But here's what's really interesting. She gets to the banquet, and somehow... She senses that the timing is not quite right. Now, this is, a, this is a perplexing thing for me. Because not only is it in our life following God about stepping out and saying, okay, I'm going to go do this, but it's also about timing. We have to figure out what the timing is. Because sometimes, I don't know what your such a time as this is. It may be talking to the person next to you on the plane about Jesus. It might be just not talking to the person on the plane about Jesus and establishing a relationship and maybe shooting an email back and forth and maybe it takes a while before that happens. It might be doing something like going to Africa and moving there, but it might just be going on a, a missions trip to Africa first to figure it out. It, you see what I'm saying? You've got to figure out what God's timing is. And I wish I could tell you what that was, but for some reason, Esther sensed that the timing wasn't quite right. And so what did she say? She said, okay, here's what I want to do. I'm gonna, I, I, don't, I, I can't tell you tonight. Let's do this again tomorrow night. Let's have another banquet tomorrow night. For some reason, that's what God impressed on her mind. That's what God told her to do. So Haman's like, well, that's cool, man. It's awesome. It's just me and the king and queen. I'm having a blast. I'm so important. Look at me. Look how awesome I am. I'll have banquets every night with you if you want. And the king's like, whatever. I like to party. You know, I had a six-month party one time. This is all great. We'll just keep doing this, right? So uh, that night when Haman goes home, on his way home, he sees Mordecai, and he remembers how much he hates Mordecai. And this guy is so screwed up that even though he just had this wonderful banquet with the king and the queen, and remember, he has no idea that these two are related at all, he sees Mordecai and he thinks, I'm going to kill Mordecai before the 12th day of the 13th month. I'm going to go to the king tomorrow when I'm at that banquet. I'm going to ask the king if I can kill Mordecai. And I'm so sure he's going to say yes that I'm going to go home and tell my servants, this is what he did, I'm going to go home and tell my servants, I want you to erect a 75-foot pole, a gallows, that I, can, that I can erect in my yard so that I can hang Mordecai on that pole. That's, a, that's what kind of sick, crazy lunatic this guy is, okay? So, so not only are all the Jews dead on the 12th day of the 13th month, but Mordecai's probably going to die tomorrow. He's going to be impaled on a 75-foot pole, right? So, so, so now we're in a situation where not only is the situation that all of the Jews are going to die, but Mordecai is definitely going to die, and Esther may die because once she tells him that she's a Jew, even though he told her he'd do whatever he wanted to, he doesn't have to do that. He can say, well, I'm sorry, I already made a law. You're going to die. Bye-bye. You can go be on the pole with Mordecai. She doesn't have any idea what's going to happen. You see this? Unless God steps in. So what does God do? Insomnia. God's good at that. Has he ever done that to you? He does that to me sometimes. Who has insomnia? He gives the king insomnia. Why was it that Esther thought that it wasn't the right timing 
at the first banquet to, to ask this request because God wanted her to wait until he could give the king insomnia that night so that the king, during his insomnia, would decide to do something really, really strange. While he's up at night, and of course when he's up, everybody's up, he goes to his attendants and he says, hey, just some random idea. He says, hey, I got an idea. Let's go back and read the old notes from my life. Let's go back to the journal, the king's annals, and read some stuff. And for some reason, he picks up the book from four years ago, and he reads about the fact that some guy named Mordecai foiled a plot, an assassination attempt on his life, and, and all of a sudden now he's wide awake. He doesn't need to sleep. He's like, what ha- I don't even remember this. What happened? And they tell him all the story. And, they say, and, and he says, well, what did we do for this guy Mordecai? Did we do anything for him? They said, well, no. We really, I mean, we sent him a fruit basket, but we really didn't do anything. And, and, and they said, and Xerxes said, well, I mean, he's all excited now. It's like the middle of the night. He's like, we've got to honor this guy. I've got to honor this guy. He's going to be honored tomorrow. So the next morning, okay, this is, well, this is why this is so awesome. Did you see this story? I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't write a movie script better than this. The next morning, this is the morning that Haman is going to come to the king and ask if he can impale him on a pole. This is the morning that she is going to go to the king and ask for all of the Jews to be saved. This is, this is a morning in which this guy and this guy still have no idea that these two people are related, okay? They know that Mordecai is Jewish, but they do not know that Esther is Jewish. Meanwhile, Xerxes can't wait for Haman to show up because he wants to, he wants to tell Haman his great plan about Mordecai. So he, he sends for Haman, and when Haman walks in, it's so great. He says, Haman, what should the king do for the man that the king wants to honor? And it says, now Haman thought to himself, well, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? I mean, no one's slick as Haman, no one's quick as Haman, no one's next as incredibly thick as Haman, right? Isn't that what you think of? I mean, this is, this is unbelievable. So Gaston, I mean, Haman says, let them robe the man the king delights to honor. Here's what I want you to do for me. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead the horse through the city streets, proclaiming to everyone, this is the man the king wants to honor, proclaiming honor before him. This is what I think you should do. You should go get the royal horse, put the royal stuff on it, put a crown on this guy's head, and have somebody lead him around throughout the city saying, look at this guy, the king loves this guy. And the, the king said, great idea. Go at once, he commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> on the day that he thought he was going to go to the king and have this guy impaled on a pole, he has to go leading this guy around on a horse all over town saying, hey, everybody, look at Mordecai, the guy the king wants to honor. Isn't this great? I mean, this is so... I wish I was God sometimes so I could do stuff like this. This is so awesome. And you know Mordecai's trash-talking. It's not in the Bible, but you know he is. Come on. Hey, Haman, who's bowing now, huh? Right? Oh, look at them all bowing to me, Haman. 
But, but, and so Haman's kind of confused, but at least he's got the next banquet to look forward to, right? Because he's, he knows that's coming tonight. So he's like, okay, whatever, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get through. I don't know what I'm going to do now because I was going to go to him and ask him to impale him. But he just had me lead him around and tell everybody that he's a great guy. So I don't know what's going to happen. So Haman gets to the banquet, and he's there at the banquet. And, and finally, Xerxes says, okay, Esther, what is it that you want? Again, he says, I will give you up to half the kingdom. I mean, this guy is like, I love you. You're my queen. I'll do whatever you want. And here's what she says. She says, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. He had to kind of have a confused look on his face about this time. This is my, my petition. And spare my people, king. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed. Notice the wording. Destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She uses the exact words from the exact edict that Haman has the king sign into law. We're going to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Notice that. And Xerxes says, what? Who is he? Where is he? Where's the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther says, he's sitting right next to you. <laughs> an adversary and an enemy. This is the vile Haman that I'm talking about. And the Bible says the king got up in a rage and he left his wine, so you know he was mad, and he went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to, to beg Queen Esther for his life. So this picture, this is what's going on. The king is like, what? I can't believe you're a Jew. I had no idea. This is terrible. I don't like you. I'm going to walk out for a little bit. And he walks out. And as he walks out, Haman realizes that this is his opportunity, that he's going to die. He's like, man, I am having one bad day. I did not know you were a Jew. I did not know Mordecai saved this guy's life. How did all this stuff happen to me? And he starts walking over to the queen and as he, I promise I'm not making this up. You've got to read your Bible, people. This is so funny. As he's walking over to the queen, he trips and he falls. Probably over a Persian rug. Think about it. <laughs> he trips and he falls and he lands on top of Esther at the exact moment that Xerxes comes walking back in. <laughs> See, I can tell some of you didn't read your chapter this week. And Xerxes goes, what is going on? I can't believe you would attack the queen while I'm right here in the room. And Haman's going, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> this is crazy. And the Bible, all we hear from Haman at that point on is what the Bible says. All they said is, they covered Haman's face. <laughs> I, I just, I'll interpret that for you. It's never a good thing when the king puts a bag over your head, okay? I don't know if you've seen some of those mafia movies, but this is what, I mean, it's like, okay, you're done. Bye-bye. You're out of here. I told you to read this stuff. It's so awesome. But wait, 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 there's more. But one of the, one of the attendants says, hey, king, I mean, you know, I don't mean to interrupt, but I go by Haman's house every day on my way to work, and I noticed yesterday that his servants were out erecting this 75-foot gallows, and I, and I asked one of the servants, I said, hey, what, what are the gallows for? And they said, oh, Haman is going to go to the king and ask if he can impale Mordecai on that pole tomorrow. And the king said, how convenient. <laughs> right? Okay, so go take Haman and impale him on the pole instead. Boom. Haman's done. End of the story. I don't know. I don't know. It's bad. Okay. <laughs> Listen. 
Some of you really needed this story today, not just because you needed to laugh. I mean, it's one of the funniest stories of the Bible, if you think about it. It's like The Bachelor and Rambo kind of all wrapped up into one, right? It's this love story and this revenge story. I mean, talk about poetic justice. But here's, here's why you need this. I'm not making big applications. It's a long story. You needed to hear all of it. I just want you to understand that wherever you're at in your life and you're feeling desperate and you're feeling like, uh, we're going to die very soon. We're going to die very soon. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's what's going on with your kids. Maybe it's your career. You're feeling defeated. You're feeling, you know, like, uh, where's God in all this? Do not accept defeat. The upper story is that God is still watching over this process. You pray about it. You step out and do what God wants you to do. Make it happen. The story does end with happily ever after. I mean, it's still not done. The king gives Esther all of Haman's riches. And then he turns to Esther and he says, Hey, you know what? I, uh, my, my prime minister is up on a pole over there in front of his house. I need a new prime minister. Who should I have? And Esther says, well, I got an idea. Why don't you take Haman? He saved your life once. He's a pretty wise guy. And so the king gives Haman's riches to Esther and Haman's job to Mordecai. And the Jews are saved. Not only are they saved, they are given power to conquer their enemies and they are made richer on the 12th day of the 13th month. The day they thought they were going to be exterminated, they actually are able to conquer all of their enemies. And the Jews celebrate that with the Feast of Purim. They celebrate every year. If you know any Jewish people, that's the Feast of Purim and what that whole feast is about. It is about, it's the 12th day of the 13th month on their calendar. It's coming up in February. It is about the day that God stepped in and gave the king insomnia and changed the whole story. And you see, the lower story, we think, is about an ace who tells a queen to go talk to the king. But what the upper story is really about is the king of kings is watching over all of this. And here's a little trivia for you from the book of Esther. It's really interesting. The book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God's name is not directly mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible. You have to ask yourself, well, why wouldn't God's name be mentioned in this story? And I would have to ask you back, why would you need to mention God's name? I mean, it's, it's so obvious in this story that God is in control of all of this. He doesn't have to have his name written down. I mean, obviously they prayed to him, but it doesn't ever say anything about God and what he did specifically. It's all about the big picture and how he walked in. And whenever you think the deck is stacked against you, my friends, you've got to remember that God's up there dealing the cards. You've got to remember that God is what's doing this, okay? So my question for you is, what is your such a time as this? What is your such a time as this? God has given us a time and a place to be born. The Bible tells us that, and it is now. And he gave some of us beauty, and he gave some of us the ability to be computer programmers. And he didn't necessarily want us kissing on national television at the Super Bowl, but he put all of us in a place for a reason and for a time. And he gave you, Jesus told a story about the parable of the talents, and he said everybody got one. Some people got five, some people got two, but everybody got one. And Jesus was upset that the guy who only had one decided to bury it and not use it. Because God gave you these, these abilities. He gave you this so that you could go out and do something with it. At some point, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to decide, am I going to go follow God or am I going to go follow my own direction? You know, it's kind of summed up like this. Am I going to follow the fountain of youth or am I going to follow, hello, hello, the fountain of bacon? Right? What's going to happen? 
It all goes with the beautiful story next week of Nehemiah where they're literally fighting off the enemies with a sword in one hand and they're building the wall with a trowel in the other hand at the same time. It goes back to the story that I said last week, whose temple are you building? It's about stepping out and doing some stuff that's crazy, doing some stuff that doesn't make any sense to you. And I love that over 500 people signed volunteer forms last week and signed up. You guys are awesome. We had literally a tenth of the people that were here sign a volunteer form. And we got, I mean, I love that. Because you stepped across the line last week. You know what? We, I mean, we may not have even gotten back to you yet because we had so many people. It was awesome, and you could still do it. You, you step across the line. But, but it's deeper than even just serving. It's deeper than that. He's called you to something more than money, more than a career, more than even your family. He's called you to raise your family to go to heaven. There's no doubt about that. But he's got you here on this planet because he's got a mission for you. And he wants you to step across the line, and he wants you to be ready to go whenever that time is for such a time as this. So you've got to figure out what that is. And I know that you're going to look at me and you're going to be like, was that like some kind of ministry-related thing? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe you need to sell everything and move to Africa. But, but understand, last week Ezra was a law professor. This week Esther was a beauty queen. And next week Nehemiah is an urban developer. None of them were priests. None of them were in ministry. Okay? I don't know whether that's a full-time gig for you or if God has placed you in your company, you in your family, you in your position wherever it is right now for such a time as this. I don't know how to answer that. All I could do today was tell you the story and help you to see how God works through all these things and hope that at some point you get yourself in a situation where you have to have God show up or it's just not going to work in your life. Esther's objection to Mordecai was, hey, if I risk the palace, I might lose everything. And Mordecai said, you've lost everything already one way or the other. It doesn't matter. It's kind of like what Jesus said. Whoever finds his, whoever finds his life is going to lose it, but whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake is going to find it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your such a time as this is. But whatever it is, I know that you were born for this. I love that song. I'll tell you why. Because it's a Mandisa song who was born for the crazy show called American Idol that she got onto so that she could become what God had, you know, created her to do. She stepped across the line. She went to an audition. She made it into the, the, the finals. And, you know, I mean, it, it's just crazy to think about what God can do when you step up and say, I'm, I was born for this. I'm going to figure out what it is. I don't know what that is for you. We're just going to have communion now. We're going to pray. We're going to spend some, just some time. I just want to ask you, whether you're a believer or not, maybe you just walked in here, you don't even know about any of this stuff. You're not sure how you feel about God or, or Jesus or any of this stuff. If you, if you just spend a minute right now and ask him, God's going to probably impress something in your brain that you were born for. I just want to ask you to spend some time and do that right now. Let's pray. God, I, I think I know um, that why I'm here, and um, I want to follow you. I want to live my life in such a way, Lord, that at the end of my life, they don't look back and say, he talked about God, they, but they look back at my life and say, well, he didn't have to talk about God because it's so obvious that God was in his life. I love the story of Esther. But I don't know today, I don't know this week, I don't know what I was born for exactly so I pray that you will uh, show those things to me and maybe for all of us right now as we spend some time in communion that we will realize that maybe there's somebody that we need to talk to. Maybe there's something we need to do. Maybe there's something in our lives we need to stop doing.
that you'll impress on us right now what it is that we need to hear from you. And, and we want to follow your timing, Lord. Maybe it's something that's going to come later on and you're saying right now is not the right time. That's okay. We want to listen to you. We're going, we're going to partner with you. But when it comes time for us to get in a position where we say, if I die, I die, Lord, I pray that you'll give us the strength to be able to do it. There are people in here, Lord, that may not know you, help them to know that, that you're calling out to them, that you want to use them too that you created them and that you wanted everybody to follow you and you sent your son to die for them. Let them as communion happens today just to maybe turn their heart back to you and say, Jesus, I need you to save me. I'm not good enough. I need you to save me. I want to follow you. I want to to be a believer. I want to be a follower. I want to be a disciple. And Lord, we know that your such a time as this was to go to the cross. Sometimes the such a time as this is not an easy time for us. It wasn't an easy time for you because you had to go to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you asked for it to be taken away, but God said somehow, no, this has to happen. Your such a time as this is to die on this cross because it's the only way the penalty for sin could be taken away. So you went and you did it, and we're grateful. And for those of us who believe you, we know that you've taken all of our sin away. So we celebrate at communion right now at the same time. We celebrate the fact that your such a time as this meant our freedom. Be with us as we commune, Jesus. We ask these things in your name.